Father, thanks for your kindness as you've extended to us. First, through your Son, who you've made us alive because of what he has done for us on the cross at Calvary, how you've made us know what it means to be forgiven, to experience life and its abundance because that we are now free in Christ because of the price that he paid. So, Father, we praise you for him. We're also grateful that you did not leave us alone, that you gave us your spirit to help lead us in truth and understanding and conviction. Uh, Your spirit that dwells in us to protect us uh, and to guide us in matters that uh, concern eternity. And we thank you, Father, this morning for your word that you have given us written documents of your directives, of your uh, insights to what you're like and how you would have us live in this world until you return for us. So we thank you for all of that and give our time to you uh, in Christ's name. Amen. My name's Scott Coy, and I have been around Watermark since uh, we got started. To give you a little bit of my background, I am a, uh, I serve as an elder here, and I've had the great privilege of teaching a number of the equipping classes since the, the days we opened uh, as a local body, uh, back from the days when we were praying together to these days where we actually have a big facility now, which we never uh, really shot for. It's just the way God has led us. But in this journey, we have uh, been willing to tackle any questions, hot or cold, that uh, people want to learn about and what the Scriptures speak to. And this issue of tongues is no different. Uh, It is something that's come up over the years. Uh, And again, I'm going to more history in just a little bit. But the reason why that is a significant thing to learn about is that the Scriptures do speak specifically to it. And uh, we need to be clear on what the Bible says about it and what man says about it and what is going on today. Is that, does that all line up? And so we're going to explore the scriptures together. I do not claim to be an authority on anything. What I like to be able to tell you is that I, I am a big fan of that book, the, the book that God has given us. And so I've become a student of that to some degree. And so the things that I offer you this morning will... Uh, be coming out of God's Word. I will try to only be firm where I believe that God's Word is firm, and then I'm going to give latitude where God doesn't say anything about something. And for the area in between that there can be some assumptions made, perhaps we'll make them together. Here's how I see our time laying out a bit. I'm going to go through the definitions and purposes of uh, this phenomenon or this gift called tongues. I'm going to go through the four key passages in Scripture with you. We're just going to read them. I'm going to make some observations as we go through so that you're familiar where all the data comes from. Okay? Then I'm going to take you through what I call 20 principles, 20 facts the Scriptures teach about the very subject of tongues. This is the best thing for you to understand it, but it also is the best thing to prepare you to answer questions that come down the pike from other people whether it be friends or people that are just curious or people that are sincerely confused about the issue, saying, well, how come one church says this and another church says that? Then this is that great opportunity where you go, it's not about the churches, it's about what the Word of God says. And hopefully when you leave here in a couple hours, you'll be able to say, okay, here's what we know to be true. Here's what we know to be true. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. 
Bible says something about this. So you'll be, you'll be prepared to go through it yourself. Then after we go through these, this, and I really did shorten it, I got about 22 facts about the subject of tongues as taught in the Scriptures. Tried to make it nice and concise for you. And then what we're going to do is take a little break and uh, let you guys answer the questions around your tables based on these facts I gave you so that you have a kind of a working conversation going, okay, he just said this. How does that apply to this question? And then we'll let you have some time doing that, and then I'll run through the questions real quick with you to make sure that we kind of lined up and help you a little bit that way. All right? So that's kind of where we're going with this whole thing this morning. We say the definitions and purposes of the, the subject of tongues. And when I say, I'm, just, I'm not going to keep qualifying it, tongues is this phenomenon that is biblical, but it is distorted in many circles as to what it means. And I will show you how that's unfolded over the last 2,000 years. But one of the first things that we need to know is that, that tongues, the first definition is it's a sign given to the Jews. We'll find out if this works. Okay. Then you can find that in Acts 2.12. This is, we'll read these passages in just a minute. In 1 Corinthians 14.22, where Paul, this is Acts 2.22, this is Luke describing the, the situation at Pentecost. The issue, the start of the church is Acts 2. What we find is the crucial elements to the very foundation to how the New Testament church starts in Acts 2. By the end of the book of Acts, there are a number of transitions. So that by the end of the book of Acts, the same things are not occurring that happened back at the time, you know, right after Christ's resurrection. The, the Pentecost, we'll talk about what the Pentecost is here in just a second. But the first sign, the first definition of tongues is that it was used. It was a communication that God used to communicate to the Jews. Uh, second thing is, it's a gift to the church. It's a spiritual gift. So the first thing is, it's a sign. The second use of tongues is that it is uh, uh, a gift to the church. And it is only mentioned in 1 Corinthians. And we'll read 1 Corinthians carefully here in just a minute and explain why that's such a significant passage. And it is only expounded in 1 Corinthians in all of the New Testament books. It is mentioned a couple of times in the book of Acts as it's unfolded, but only one time is it articulated and defined, uh, and that's in the book of Corinthians by Paul. The third definition, uh, there we go. Today, a lot of people like to think of tongues as a prayer language, and they use Romans 8.26 as their passage. So we have a sign to the Jews, a gift to the church, and now we say that, some say that it's a prayer language in Romans 8.26. Now when we look at Romans 8.26, though, you're going to say, really? That's going to be a tough one. But we will walk through that together. I think that's important that you see that there are many out there today. It's not mainstream, but there are many out there that think that, they're, that to be able to speak in an unintelligible language is somehow special communication to God. And that somehow 
you're able to communicate something in a prayer language that you couldn't express to God in your own dialect that you're familiar with. Uh, most of you, I suppose, that that would be English, except for Jared. And I'm not sure what that New York thing is. Uh, in the last definitions, they say it's a prayer, it's a praise language, and this is First Corinthians thirteen one, and this is the uh, definition that says, well, in an ecstatic, unexpressible, or excuse me, expressible but unintelligible language, you're able to praise God in a way that brings you to new heights and new depths of your spiritual journey. And the passage that is used for that is 1 Corinthians 13.1. And if you know, again, this 1 Corinthians thing keeps coming back, and that's why we're going to dive into it. And, and I'm glossing over these purpose and definitions because we'll get into them more fully when we look at the, the passages. But this is basically the ball field, if you will. This is what the purpose of tongues, this... Uh, language, if you will, that you're able to speak that you do not know. That's the definition of tongues. A language that is spoken that you do not know yourself. It's used as a sign to the Jews, to the unbelieving Jews specifically. It's used as a gift to the church. And we'll talk about how it's used as a gift to the church. Thirdly, it's you, they, they say it is a prayer language. And fourth, it is said that it is a praise language. And those are the passages that are offered up. Now, let's look at the, at the key stuff. If you've got your Bibles, pull out Acts, uh, Acts 2, the crucial passage to this whole issue. And if you haven't, uh, I'm going to read it. That's okay. Or look on. Uh, and you can stop me if you get questions along the way, and I'll tell you whether or not we're going to cover that in a little bit. We might hold on, or we'll stop and answer it. Because it's important to me to answer whatever questions you have, as it is for me to download everything there is. I mean, I can take do this in 20 minutes, or I can do this in... In four hours, and so my idea is to try to scratch you where you're itching. Uh, so that's, that's going to be my attempt this morning. Let's uh, read this together. This is the time right after uh, Christ had uh, been resurrected, and then he ascended. And after he ascended, there were as many people, I say there were around 500 people that actually watched him ascend into heaven. So there was some real chatter going on right now, and they're going, what is all of this going to be about? This incredible man who claimed to be God, proved he was God because he fulfilled over 300 prophecies that were given over 800 years prior to that. You like the way I just kind of fill you in with all this church history and biblical history as we go? That's what I do. He, and he rose from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven. And then there is a Jewish celebration called Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is a holiday that's been on the books for hundreds and hundreds of years. Pentecost means 50, 50 days, and, and it was a celebration of the first harvest in the Jewish calendar. And it always came 50 days after the Passover. Well, when Christ died on the cross, he fulfilled the Passover. His blood covered the sin of the world. It's just like when they put the blood on the, the doorposts and the lintel, the, the deal of the houses in uh, Egypt, 
and the cloud of death passed over everybody that was covered by the blood. That's what Jesus did. He died on the cross. His blood is now an offering for those who believe in Him. And the spirit of death passes over Him. So Jesus was the first Passover. That's what the death and resurrection was all about. Fifty days later, there's a Pentecost. Or in the Jewish calendar, after they celebrated that Passover, they would celebrate the first harvest. And they would take their, their best uh, fruits that were coming out of the field, and they would have this big feast because it was a sign of God's faithfulness that, that life was going on. And they would celebrate it agriculturally by enjoying the first fruits. So now we got 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead. We have Pentecost. So instead of celebrating the first fruits which come out of the fields, you're celebrating the first fruits that come from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which is the first fruits are the first Christians. So that's why Acts 2 and the celebration of Pentecost is such a big deal. It is the starting of the church. And if we took even more time, we would go over to Ephesians where Paul explains this very, very important thing that happens. See, in in Ephesians, Paul explains that when the church starts, it is unique to all of history. And he, he said that what happens is, in the Old Testament, you had people looking forward to the coming Messiah. In the church, you have them looking back at the, what the Messiah had done. He had paid the price. And during the development of the church, what was going to be unique to you guys sitting around these tables this morning, and for the last 2,000 years, is that when you become, when you put your faith in Christ, when you believe that He died on the cross in your place, and He appropriates that forgiveness to you, He fills you with the Holy Spirit. God's presence, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, takes place in all believers. Paul calls this the mystery that was never known before in the Old Testament, but is unique to New Testament believers. That means you and me. So the fact that when you became a Christian, God took up residency in your life. That's a huge deal. Well, they didn't understand all of this, as you can imagine. That'd be pretty confusing new stuff to the new church, because they're still trying to, well, I believe I saw him die on the cross, and now, uh, you know, what does all this mean? Pentecost starts all of that for you. Okay, so that's the background here. So when the day of Pentecost had come, they were together in one place. They, all these people are wondering all about these Jews that are wondering what all that meant. Uh, the disciples, I mean, everybody's together here. And they were together in one place. Verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. There's a phenomenon going on here. They're looking, they don't have a clue. This thing is just crazy. And it appeared to them as tongues as of fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So this phenomenon is taking place. They have all these people. There is something going on and people are visibly and physically and spiritually being changed. There's something going on here. And all these people from nations, different nations, different tribes, begin to speak in other tongues. 
The translation of other tongues is language. So they're speaking in other languages to each other that they would know. It would be like Jeff talking to Doris. And one speaks Macedonian and one speaks Greece. Greek. So, I mean, but they're able to hear one another. And there's, there's such confusion because people are being able to speak in a language that they've never spoken before. It goes on. Now, they were, were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Verse 6. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together. And they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak, get this, in their own language. This sign in tongues involves in speaking in a language that they did not know to speak and was understood in their own language. So it works both ways. He says, they were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each one here in our own language to which we were born? There are Paphians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and districts of Libya and around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. Verse 11, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. What did they hear? They heard in their own language things that had to do with God. And why is this important? Keep in mind all these people, mostly the rabbinic tradition would teach the Scriptures. People didn't have copies of their own Scriptures. Everything you see in the New Testament, folks, is going to be new stuff. It will not be until the end of the New Testament, which we will describe here in a little bit when we talk about history, that Every time they were learning about new things about God, about His Son Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about how to live, how to forgive, how to do these things, how things are different in the Old Testament than they are in the New, how the things in the Old Testament were fulfilled in the New Testament, they didn't know. So God, for a very kind period of time, some 50, 60 years, treated the new church very distinctly. They did not have the New Testament. So he is going to speak to them and through people, through signs, through wonders to authenticate that he's not making this stuff up. The apostles will have special gifts to say, why were they given special gifts? Because when they started talking about these new things of God, people go, why do, oh, why do I want to believe him? Well, you might want to believe him because one, he said he's from God. And two, he just raised that child from the dead. You know, he's a little different. So they had gifts that would go along with their signs to authenticate their message. And so this is all part of it. This idea that God is speaking from heaven saying, this stuff is for real. You can't make Mitch speak German if he's never spoken a word of German. But God can. And there was great confusion, but this is God saying, hey guys, I've got a new program for you. You ready to pay attention? And they're all going, oh my, yes, absolutely. They're staggered. And this is what's going on here with all these different people hearing from God when God is simply speaking to them through one another, being able to speak a language that they've never spoken and understand it that way. And the key thing is here, they were telling them things about God. They did not have a New Testament. So when somebody was prophesying in the New Testament... They were giving them the words that we would later have in the New Testament. 
when they were speaking revelation. They were, they were only speaking words that they didn't have, but we would have by the end of the writing of the New Testament. So by the time we have those 27 books called the New Testament, we have everything written that all these guys were doing with special signs and wonders and gifts. Okay? So that's how that unfolded. And they were very, very important. You, wanted, you understand that. I just couldn't walk into a room and start saying, let me tell you about the Holy Spirit. And they're going to go, what are you talking about? So God would accompany that with the incredible, miraculous, saying, this is what I mean the Holy Spirit. Wham! And then a little bit later on, God kind of narrows it down. We'll look at another passage just to say. And each time till the end of Acts, there's only 12 people. And then one more time, he's going to say, I'll show you how the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And henceforth, when you believe in Jesus Christ, there will be no demonstration of signs from heaven or anything else. You will, at the point you trust Jesus, get the Holy Spirit. It's part of the package. And it was understood by the whole church. Thirty years into this thing, they got it. All these things were being taught in the churches that were being founded. And Paul and Peter and Luke and the guys that wrote the Gospels were all sending out the letters and they were being communicated and so everybody was getting the same teaching. We'll talk about some of that in a minute. Okay, well this Acts 2 is pretty darn important so we're going to spend a little more time on it. Alright, so uh, they heard all in verse 12 it said, And they were continued in amazement and great perplexity. No kidding. Imagine this is quite a zoo. This would be... This would be off the charts. And they were saying to one another, this is your 2.12, what does this mean? What, what's the ability to speak in a language you don't know and hear something that you've never, never heard before and understand it in your own language? And then there were others, as there always is, but others were mocking and saying they were filled with a bunch of sweet wine. In other words, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, but they're already drunk. That's the, one of the arguments. Peter does this. We said it was a sign. Acts 2 was a sign to the Jews. What Peter does with all this great commotion and this great opportunity with all the languages, he uses this as a great opportunity to share the gospel. Remember, we, the Scriptures will tell us, Paul will tell us again in, in 1 Corinthians 14, that the purpose of tongues is a sign to the unbeliever. The purpose of tongues is a sign to the unbeliever. Well, Peter is going to take advantage of this sign to share the gospel. And listen to what he says. Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel... This is Joel 2.28, if you're looking to write down where Joel said this was going to happen. And then he explains. He quotes the Old Testament. This is what the apostles did. They would often quote the Old Testament and then explain to this group of new believers what it really means to them now that they have these things. And he says, I will pour out my spirit, verse 17, uh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your men shall see visions. Verse 18, and my bonds lays both men and free, and I in those days I will pull forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Verse 19, I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Verse 20, and the sun will be turned into dark. He goes on, 
he refers to, he, Joel tells the whole prophecy, not only of the New Testament beginnings, but also to how Jesus, when he comes back. Verse 22. Uh, verse, excuse me, verse 21. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He wants, he's working in the gospel. He's taking advantage of all this. This is men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazarene, a man attested you by God with, with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him. What was all the purpose of all that New Testament stuff that Jesus did? Peter tells us right here. He said, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as yourself know. Yourselves know. This man delivered over by predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it is impossible for him to be held in its power, for David said of him. And then he quotes David to explain the prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. Um, this is, and so then he goes forth with the rest of this chapter, and he basically, uh, well, let me skip down and read just a couple more verses before we go to the next passage. In verse 37, Now, when you heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? See, they're asking the question. They've seen these incredible signs. They're being able to have these languages heard and spoken that they never knew before. He said, what do we do with all this? And Peter says in verse 38, Repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what is that about? That's what I was just telling you. This, this starts the whole teaching in the New Testament of what it means to have the Holy Spirit in you. And there's tons of stuff, and you need to get with Blake Holmes, who I understand is an expert in this area, and get him to have a class that is taught on... Uh, the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Now that's a good class. For the purpose is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for as many of the Lord of God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. That's so what he kept telling them. He says it's important that you be saved. In verse 43 says, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through, look at this, through the apostles. Not everybody was running around doing these things. The apostles were doing these special things where they were raising people from the dead. They were healing people. They were interpreting tongues. They were doing all sorts of miraculous things to authenticate their message. And in verse 46 uh, it says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those were, who were being saved. Acts 2 is huge. It's the start of the church. It's where Peter explains everything about what Jesus did, how he fulfills all the issues of the Old Testament, and more importantly, that you're going to have God now living in you, the Holy Spirit. Very, very important passage. All right, we don't see this little this uh, Holy Spirit stuff again until Acts 10. Flip over to Acts 10. Very clearly, Acts 2 is assigned to the unbelieving Jew. That's what the whole purpose of this tongues thing 
was in Acts 2. It opened the door for him to be able to share the gospel. And we find that when he shared the gospel, you know, thousands believed. That's what started the church. So he used this tongues thing as a sign to the Jews. The Jews say, what's this all about? Peter explains the gospel and they believe. And they continue on the growth of the church. We get to Acts 10. This is when, when uh, you know, they, this is after Paul trusts Christ. This is after Peter is now starting his different um, reaching out. And the evangelism is spreading in the church. Acts 10, we get to uh, the passage over... Uh, verse 44 in Acts 10. But keep in mind, the first, all the evangelism of the early church went to who first? To whom first? Who got to hear about Christ first? Anybody know? Jeez, excellent. So all of the early stuff that Peter did was basically to the Jews. So this tongues thing was pretty important to them. Because it's, it, Paul said it was given to the Jews so that they would believe. So now, if it's a sign, and he's been working the Jews, now the Gentiles are coming into the picture. Now the Gentiles don't know anything. They're like most of us. We had no religious background. So when they start talking to the barbarians, which are called Gentiles, which are people from all over Greece and Rome and, and that whole Asia Minor area, and they're telling them things about God. And these people are going, huh? I mean, they know about temples of prostitution. They know about all the gods of Zeus and you know, Thor and all this. They've heard all this stuff. And now we're talking about a person. Their theology is really, really, really messed up. So for them to have another guy come along and start telling them about another God would be a little dangerous. So as they began to tell the Gentiles, all these barbarians, about this Jesus, the same thing applied. They used gifts, they used signs, they used wonders to authenticate their message. Because it would be very, very crucial that they just couldn't get out there and start talking. They just put that on their list of gods. So after they went to the temple and celebrated with prostitutes, they could go by the synagogue and have a little Jesus time, and then they could go, they could just check it off and go from one God to another. To make the, the true one true God unique to a people that has been hearing a lot about all kinds of gods, there had to be a way to be, authenticate the message. So in Acts 10, we see this, this happening. We see it's a sign to the Gentiles now that they are to be included in this new plan. It showed the Jews that God was including the Gentiles, but it also showed the Gentiles. And we see this in verse 44. And it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, now he's telling the Gentiles. Up in verse 34, he started telling the new barbarians about this Jesus. This is big stuff. This is the growth of the church. This is watermark on steroids is what this is. They, so they're real excited about all this. And Peter's trying to explain it because Peter just kind of got it figured out too. The Holy Spirit just kind of communicated to Peter, hey, Peter, it's not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles. And so as Peter's trying to get this armor out, because, you know, Peter's this, an old Jewish fellow, an old fisherman that's thinking he's got this special deal just for his people. And God's going, no, Peter, it's for everybody. Peter's going, wow. Well, okay, you say so. And he made it very clear to Peter that it was for everybody. So he tells everybody, tells the Gentiles about it. 
And is he still talking about it? Verse 44, and as when Peter would say these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. Again, the sign to the Jews who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Acts 10 expands it. And this is the sign of the expansion. We've got Jesus to the Jews. Now in Acts 10, we've got Jesus to the Gentiles, which is accompanied by a sign. Poured out to the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. So now the Gentiles are in on this, and all these Gentiles are going, they're hearing, and they're this, all this stuff about God in their own languages, and people are getting pretty excited about it because, you know, when you discover that all these, all this talk you've ever heard about all these different various gods that they use to extract money from you or they use to control you and all that, and now you get to hear about this life-giving God who, in fact, not only wants you to have a full life, but gave His life to pay for your sin. These people were amazed. They were awed that God would include them in this great economy. And God made it clear to them because He gave them a sign. As Peter was explaining this thing, the same sign that happened in Acts 2. And they heard these things. They were pretty excited about it. So we've seen this tongues used now to expand to the Gentiles. Again, the whole deal goes quiet. We see it again the next time we see tongues. Is in Acts 19. Now this is pretty interesting. You can imagine the spread of Christianity is pretty pretty big stuff. And I, I'm really excited about teaching the, getting to this next section here when I talk about the, the history that's behind all of, uh, of tongues. Because the, the journey of this is really significant. You have Acts, which blows everybody out of the tub. Then you have Acts 10, which is kind of a control deal because now he's telling the Gentiles about it. And it's just, God says, here, let me help you out, Peter. He sends tongues, the ability to speak languages and hear languages, to the Gentiles. And they're scratching their head going, wow, this is, this is really cool stuff. So everybody's busy telling everybody about this faith. The gospel is really spreading now. These are the years, you know, from 40 A.D. Now we've, we've moved, paused to making missionary journeys. And now he's already taken a couple. We've already had the first council back in Jerusalem. And the church is beginning to spread. But what did I just tell you? They're being told, the Gentiles are being told about Jesus now. What background would they have at all to know about God? Zero. Keep in mind, this isn't even something in America where you may have heard a Sunday school lesson or something. These folks didn't have a clue. And so when Paul writes Corinthians, which is the most immature church out there, the, uh, they got real problems, but they have the most gods too. And they have the poorest theological training. So they're really, really, really confused. But what you have, though, is this church continues to grow and expand. Now you've got people you know, way out in Turkey trust, you know, saying, I believe in this Jesus. But they don't have any idea what they're... They're not sure what they're believing. They've never heard of the Holy Spirit. They don't know anything about morality. They don't... You know, and this is all these things that we're going to be taught by the letters in the New Testament. Keep in mind, they're a blank piece of paper. And now they're hearing about this God. 
That's why the dissemination of truth is very, very important. That, they, that the people really can trust who they're listening to. And how God made that possible is that He gave people the authority, these, particularly the apostles, to do things nobody else could do. We're in Acts 19, I'm going to show you something, but the next chapter, Paul's speaking, and he's been talking for a number of hours like some teachers can do, and, some, and the guy was sitting in the window, and he fell out, a child fell out, and he died. And, you know, and that'd be a real bummer to, you know, your Bible study, you know, to have somebody, you know, fall out of a window two stories and, you know, Paul, you know, you know that would change Sunday morning, I'm sure. Uh, but Paul immediately went down there and God gave him the ability to raise that child from the dead. Well, not everybody could run around and do that. But if you were watching it, Brent's watching this for the first time, he came to hear Paul going, and Paul's talking about the new way that we're going to love and forgive, the way we're going to honor our marriages, and, and he's teaching the same stuff that we get in the New Testament. And the guys are hearing it for the first time, well, that's pretty interesting, that's different than what the Romans are saying, and that's different than the, the God down at the corner. And, and, but I don't know. And then this child falls out of a window, Paul goes down, breathes on this child, and God allows him to be the vehicle which he gives life back to this child. What's Brent going to think? Maybe, just maybe, this Paul's a special guy. That's the idea of gifts. That's the apostolic picture of why God gave a package of gifts to authenticate and to spread the gospel. It was very important. Otherwise, people wouldn't go, I don't know if I believe him. Why any different than, than the next guy? Well, he was different because God made him different. Well, in chapter 19, you get to this deal. This church has been spreading. The news of Christ has been moving on. And, Blake, when you decide to, to leave us, if you bring me back a little water, I'd appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, well, I know that you're here first. You're up here. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cute. I'll get you. All right, so we got chapter 19. And yeah, you're right. You, you, Rebecca will probably listen to this tape tonight, and I hope you do. Uh, <laughs> chapter 19. Everybody with me here? This is good. It happened while Apollos was at Corinth. Uh-huh. Here we go. This, this Corinthians church, guys, was really confused. That's why every chapter has a problem in it. It is different than all of the other books of the New Testament in that Paul deals with a problem in every chapter. It is, I refer to 1 Corinthians as the letter written to the most immature church out there. I mean, it truly is. It's just one chapter, one problem, next chapter, another problem, all the way through. And it's okay. That's just part of the journey. The exciting part is all these people who became Christians, there's always a journey to be traveled when you're a new believer. Corinthians were no different. All right, so Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples, and he said to them, this is the new, new Christians that he's run into in Ephesus. Are you ready for this? That's why you read the Scriptures carefully, because you don't just race through this stuff. Because every time you read something, you go, man, are you kidding me? No wonder he addressed it. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, if you're a new believer in Ephesus, and you are asked this question, what would you say? What are you talking about? They never heard of the Holy Spirit. 
you know, when he was asked this, when Paul was Paul asked me, said, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Because remember, it came on in Acts 2, Acts 10, it came on them, the Gentiles. So everyone, all the apostles are aware that the Holy Spirit's got to come on you. When you, because God's got to take up residency in your life. That's the mystery of Ephesians chapter 3. That God lives in us. So they all know that you've got to get the Holy Spirit. But these people didn't understand even what the Holy Spirit was about. And they respond, uh, verse 3 says, uh, verse 2 says, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we've not even heard of whether there is a Holy Spirit. That's a great honest answer. Well, no, we don't even know about the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't know if we got it or we didn't get it. How do you know? Because the Scriptures teach you, right? And that's the only reason I know. And he goes, this is great. And he said to them, into what were you baptized? I said, what are you talking about? You know, did you get baptized? Well, yeah, yeah, we got baptized. Uh, and they said, to John's baptism. Well, that was the earlier one, too. So they didn't understand what it meant to be baptized as a new Christian. They didn't understand what it meant to have the Holy Spirit. They didn't understand anything. They're new believers. And they didn't have a New Testament. So Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe, to believe in him who was coming after him. Thank you very much. Uh, and Paul said, uh, to believe in him who was coming after him in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on him, remember, this is authenticating his message, that Paul's not making this stuff up. This is important. This is the first time they've been around an apostle. They've been hearing all this stuff about Jesus, but is it really true? We don't have a New Testament. We're a little confused. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. So what we have in this situation, this is where this is going to be the foundation of this church up in Ephesus. And as Paul is teaching them about the Holy Spirit, he authenticated his message and he gave them and they were able to speak and prophesy. Now, this other deal, prophesying, you know what? Do you understand what New Testament prophesying is? We talk about a prophet today as somebody that is bold to speak the truth. And I do believe that there are people with the spirit of being a prophet. They're, they're not afraid, regardless of the, of the environment or the culture, to speak truth into it. But in biblical times, a prophet is one who gave revelation from God. They had to be 100% correct. They weren't Nostradamus. They weren't correct most of the time. They weren't, if they, a prophet, in biblical times, if you weren't correct 100% of the time, they killed you. It was not a business you went into easily. And it was the type of deal that you didn't play around to try to impress some of your friends and say, I hope I get two out of three right. A prophet had to be right 100% of the time. So in the New Testament, when they prophesied, they were sharing New Testament truths that were not yet written in the New Testament. When, by the time when we have the full New Testament, the gift of adding new revelation or prophesying, getting revelation that has not been received, was no longer needed. And we'll see how history treats that in just a second.
Uh, you know, these passages are, are so fun. You really can learn everything you want to know about a different piece of theology by reading the Scriptures and just keep soaking it up. This is tongues. What's he saying about what's happening? He said, well, there are only 12 men here. Paul was involved. He had to authenticate his message. This is the last time, folks. This is Acts 19. This is the last time you're going to see this. Because now the teaching has spread. People are understanding the Holy Spirit. You you will understand from Paul's writings, because Paul is writing people, saying when you believe, you get the Holy Spirit. They no longer had to wait for the laying on of hands. They had to no longer wait for a sign of tongues that they got it. That this revelation had reached this point where now the church was getting very solid because people were eating this stuff up, folks. They came from nothing. They, that's why they read or they, they, they went to every meeting they could. Every time there was somebody exercising their gifts, they listened. It was really important stuff. They worked like banshees to try to get this stuff so they could understand what it meant to follow Christ. Because the persecution was right around the corner. Keep in mind, this is that time where the Romans are still persecuting the Jews. They're not messing much with the Christians until about 90 A.D. You tracking with me? 90 A.D. This is about the time that we believe that the last New Testament letter was written. So we have the whole New Testament written in its entirety by around 90 A.D. And John, who wrote the book of Revelation on a little island, a little Greek island called Potmos, which, ironically, it's where my wife and daughter were yesterday, to be able to tell this story accurately. They, they visited the so-called cave where this happened. But that, was, that tradition tells us that that's, we know Revelation is John's book. Um, but we think that's the end of the writing of the New Testament. So now we've got all the letters circulating to all the churches, and they're copying them down, and they're passing them around, and all the letters of Paul, and all the letters of Peter, and these things from John, and these uh, the, the Gospels are all circulating, and it becomes the text, the guidelines for what they believe, and how they're to act, and, and to what the New Testament church looks like. It's big stuff. And they had to have it done by 90 AD, because God in His foreknowledge... And, and the whole providential picture of the, of the world, God knew that the persecution was going to start hitting the Christians about that time. And then from 90 A.D. until 330 A.D. was a period of great significant growth of the church. They had a body of literature that we called the Scriptures that was canonized a little bit later, but it was without a doubt they agreed upon in the earlier days, and they used that literature and people to continue to spread the gospel throughout all of southern Europe, all the way to Great Britain by the year 300 A.D., all the way up to Russia, all the way over to India. The gospel had spread, but it had spread amidst a season of five various persecutions. And during these persecutions, the different Roman leaders would come through and they would basically give Christians the options of recanting. In other words, deny your faith and we won't kill your family. And they didn't do it. We, there are five distinct periods during this time until the church was institutionalized, if you will, uh, in, the, in the 300s. The great and wonderful things happened. The church grew. It took root. 
They started to change culture after culture. And it was done through the church. And it was done through the writings that, that God had given that we call the New Testament. But a very interesting thing as we move into the, this next section of uh, well, well, let me let me switch finish this last point and then I'll get back to it. That it was very interesting that happened during that period of time is that after this Acts 19 passage, we don't we don't really have any more discussion of tongues as a proclamating sign and a gift to the church. And I'll expose that in a little bit. What we have, if you go to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, is a very, very significant passage. It is the, the passage that teaches as, on tongues as a spiritual gift. What you saw in the book of Acts is tongues as a sign. Now we've got it as a spiritual gift. And Paul very carefully explains, well, like... Corinthians had a tendency to do, they, they messed up every piece of theology that Paul had given them. Uh, because, again, they were greatly confused, young believers, because of all the other teachings that were taking place in Corinth. They were the folks that they thought it was as important to, to align yourself with Alan as it was Jesus. They said people that were all about Alan, all about Jared, all about Scott, and Paul had to deal with all these elementary things, saying, no, you don't follow a man, you follow Jesus. And then it's the, all the passages about divorce and remarriage, and people are going, well, I'm a Christian and my spouse is not a Christian. Do I stay with him or not stay with him? Paul walked him through all of that. And then he gets to the section, chapter 12, he said, you know, what about gifts, all these gifts? We, got, we, want, we want gifts because you know, all those other gods, they've got all kinds of miraculous things going on, and... And they do all kinds of things. And, and cults for, forever have spoken in tongues, guys. Tongues is not a new uh, phenomenon for us as a Christian. There are cults today that elevate the gift of being able to speak in a language you don't know. That's why Paul went very carefully to explain what the gift of tongues is to a Christian. So that the Corinthians wouldn't confuse it with tongues from a pagan God. Because if you're talking in tongues from a pagan God, then you're probably channeling from the, for the devil. So Paul goes to great pains to explain all the gifts to the early church in these three chapters. And he says some great points. Just very, very quickly, let me, let me point some of these things out. Uh, verse, chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware... <laughs> You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. No kidding. He starts out and he goes, Okay, guys, your foundation for understanding spiritual gifts is somewhat suspect. So we're going to have to go back and clean some things up. Because you bring a lot of bad teaching. You've not had it in the authority of the Scriptures to clarify what is right or wrong. You've been, whatever somebody wanted to tell you, that was good. And if somebody else wanted to tell you that was good too. So they were very, very confused. And he says, I don't want you to be unaware. Because as pagans, you guys were all over the map. And he goes, let me see if I can straighten a few things out. Therefore, I was making known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God uh, says Jesus is a curse. He was making it very clear about the Holy Spirit. That the only way that you can claim Christ is if you have the Holy Spirit. 
in verse 4, he says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. He makes an argument for the Holy Spirit that you, that's very important to them. Uh, time is not allowing me to get into tons of this with you. So let me keep rolling. Um, there are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in you. Verse 7, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, when the Holy Spirit came upon you guys, and this is true today, because this is what Paul teaches more thoroughly in his other letters, but he's starting this, these young baby Christians saying, here's what happens. When you become a Christian, you get spiritual gifts. Everyone gets a gift to help the body. So this is really exciting. I'm going to tell you what the gifts are. And you guys need to understand what your gift is, and you need to use it to contribute to the rest of the body. Okay? So that's what they're doing. And in verse 8, For one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to gifts of healing by one Spirit, by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues. That's verse 10. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. Yes, he, the, the Scriptures teach that God gives, gives spiritual gifts and that one of these gifts during the apostolic age for sure was the ability to speak in tongues. Why would you get the gift of tongues if you were a member of this first church? He's going to answer that in case you didn't want to. I was going to let you do it rhetorically. Is this that? Yeah, he's going to help me. Remember, Corinth is, you know, it's, it's important. They've they got people coming in and out with all different types of languages. How great would it be to be able to sit down with Jared when he comes in from New York and actually speak a New York language? You know, we don't even do that in Dallas. But if you had the gift of tongues, you would be able to do that for Jared. That was a big deal. So they can appreciate why that gift was important. But he said to another one, interpretation, da, da, da. And verse 12 says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so Christ. Uh, so he makes this argument that all these gifts have to work together, that no gifts are separated out. Uh, and they wanted to, the Corinthians wanted to elevate. They liked this gift because this gift of tongues historically was a very hot little item in other religions as well. Okay? Understand what we're talking about. Yes, Mitch? Well, because, well the, the point is that you would have, oftentimes, if you had somebody speak and no one was there to understand it, the gift of interpretation would be by the receiver. That's absolutely right. No, it would be like me. If you're German, and, I'm, and I would just be able to speak German, not knowing German, and you would understand everything, you would have the interpretation of what I just said. Um, that's why I said it worked both ways. You might be speaking a language, or I might speak English, and you hear it in German. That's what was very unique. And so they're speaking their own language, and the other guy's hearing it and going, man, I understand this, dude. What's wrong with me? <laughs> right. It'd be like you getting in a great conversation from somebody from the Middle East who's speaking Arabic, Aramaic. And you're going, are you kidding me? And you understand clearly what he's saying. You would have the gift of interpretation. 
what they what they're very careful to say is that any time that somebody is speaking in a language that is unintelligible to the individual, then somebody's got to be able to explain them what it means. It has to, you have to have a catcher and a receiver, a thrower and a receiver. And that's what he's saying. Anytime you saw somebody speaking, you had somebody understanding. Anytime you had somebody understanding, you had somebody throwing. So you always saw, you always saw these gifts together. And that's what that means. And we, we will touch it. But Jawohl, ich kann das gut Deutsch sprechen. Vielleicht? All right, I'm speaking German and you're looking at me like I ate a bug. If you don't understand me, then Mitch needs to be the interpreter. Somebody needs to be there to catch it, to explain to him what it means. I think if he... There, because I could be speaking... Oh, yes. Be three languages in the room. Uh, well, and obviously there were scores of languages which made the confusion to everybody. Because even though they were speaking and talking, everybody was... They, the Scriptures made it very clear that they were hearing it in their own language which means that somebody was either explaining it to them in their own language, or they, the words were being mystically changed where you could understand them. So I'm speaking, I only speak German, to, and you only speak English. And I start speaking, telling you the gospel in German. Well, Mitch, who is hearing all of this, speaks your language, takes what I'm saying and can communicate it to you. Well, or or that could be the gift. It, it could be either way. Either the person hears it that way, or the or the hearer who doesn't necessarily understand German saying, "Oh, I got it. I know what he's saying." If you have the gift of interpretation, that's correct. And the the idea is being able to communicate to somebody that speaks a different language than you that God miraculously does that. He either uses a third party to do the translating who has the gift of interpreting what you're saying to the individual, because perhaps Jared now can speak that language. But what is clearly involved is the ability to communicate truth to somebody in a language other than your own, whether that is the, actually being able to communicate it out of your lips or how that's received. But that's what the idea of an interpret, interpretation is that there's somebody... Let's say I came into, you're, you have a church, you're at Ephesus, and I came in, and, and I just started speaking a language that none of you understood. Uh, maybe perhaps it's Chinese, and there aren't any Chinese in your little church here at Ephesus. Well, we're hoping that, you know, Brent would stand up if he had the gift of interpretation and say, he's saying, greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes and he's wanting to encourage you, in the interma- and he starts translating what I'm saying to all of you. So that my noise, what appears like noise, is not noise at all. It has a purpose because it's orderly and it has an interpreter who then translates for everybody. He has the gift of interpretation. That, that would be the argument from this scripture, yes. That it was a known language. And Paul makes a bigger argument. Again, it's a time deal that we don't go into. But he makes an argument that all sounds have purposes. And then to, to assume that you can make a sound without an intention and a purpose. This is his argument probably against a prayer language or a praise language that is unintelligible. Paul goes, why would you do that? I mean, it's like me playing the trumpet. You would not want to listen to me playing the trumpet. 
Now, if one of you can play the trumpet and make beautiful music with it, you'd want to listen to that. But that's what Paul's argument says. Why would you want to pick up the guitar and beat on it if you don't know what you're doing? Yes, Brent. All right. You do that for your own edification. And what does he say that the gifts, what the spiritual gifts are for? We're, going to, we're getting ourselves up a little bit. The, gift, the purpose of the gifts are to edify the body of Christ. Well, can we get to 14.2 here in a little bit? I'd love to get into that verse, but I want to kind of take it in order. Yes. Well, I, th- I think to your point, it's correct. I, it's my analogy that falls short of the, the truth. What I was trying to communicate with that is how you would take a language that somebody from somebody else is saying and how God would change that language so that you could hear it. Maybe the Chinese thing was a bad illustration. I'll, I'll take that one off the table. I think ultimately what, they're, what God was trying to do was communicate truth. And he didn't want the fact that people spoke different languages to hinder people hearing the truth. And I think that's where with the gift come, the spiritual gift comes in to play. And we'll get into, I'll spend a little bit more time on that too when we go through some of the other passages. And I'll, we'll get back to that, the 4-2 passage here in just a second. Because I think that's an important one to look at. Uh, okay, we'll go. We'll, let's time wise. Eleven thirty is our time. And you want to break at ten? Let me race through this part real quick, then, and we'll we'll break at ten. Uh, the historical view of tongues. Let me explain what is taking place at this point because of all these. Uh, I told you the. The popularity of being able to speak in something that's not uh, a language you know is common in a lot of different religions and sects and cults. So it's very clear that we kind of stick with the scriptures. The historical view of the script of tongues, uh, the first century, the Bible kind of speaks to itself. Whatever you see in the scriptures is the best way to view tongues uh, for the first century. What is interesting, second and third uh, centuries that is very rarely mentioned throughout this entire period of these five persecutions uh, where families are being uh, killed and martyred, where individuals are. None of the writers make any reference to the spiritual gift of tongues or the sign of tongues or the use of tongues. Anyway, any of the literature that you find from any of the church fathers there's very, there, there are a few fringe groups, but orthodoxy, the main church, is, is no longer making tongues any kind of an issue by the second, third church. The Nicene Creed, this happens uh, around 320-something A.D., 323 A.D. Um, the Nicene Creed was put together because uh, the persecution has been going on now in the, in the church, the letters have been circulating. There's starting to be additional letters, and they wanted to clean this up. So they got all the church leaders together, uh, and they basically put down their doctrinal position. And their doctrinal positions of the, known, of the Orthodox Church, the one that had spread all the way up into France by now and all the way east and into the Middle East and uh, across northern Africa, and their doctrinal statement of the Nicene Creed, which is crucial because church historians and theologians will tell you that these guys were very careful to include the stuff that uh, um, was crucial to the body of Christ, that their, their theology remained strong, and that 
uh, the Christian life as they begin to teach morality and all these things was very so strong. And there is no mention of tongues at all in, by this time. Yeah, yeah, that's why you'll find that there are a lot of folks that believe that there weren't any more use of the of tongues after about 90 A.D. That is correct. We'll look at that in a second. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think it's probably predominantly true. But I, I don't think we, you're not going to, I won't go to that corner where I'll, I will say that there, there is no tongues there's, and things like that. I just want to qualify it is very less necessary because now you have the written scriptures and you have the teaching on the Holy Spirit and you have the teaching that you received the Holy Spirit when you, became, when you become a Christian. The Roman church, which is now taken over St. Augustine, or, uh, after St. Augustine, this is uh, the church that was taken over and institutionalized. Uh, the five persecutions are now over. People have been being killed all over Africa and the Middle East and, North, and Southern uh, Europe for their faith. Um, but then a little Roman emperor's uh, mother becomes a Christian. And that's where danger happens because when danger, when the state takes over anything, uh, and particularly your faith, I think you're in trouble. I was going to say GM and Chrysler, but uh, anytime, anytime the government takes over something, it's going to change. Well, it changed the church. It greatly changed the church. And you saw what happened is the Roman Catholic Church got its start. And it cruised along and became the predominant church. And there's no mention of tongues. There's none of their literature. It's not, it's, it's not a part of the church journey. In orthodoxy, it is no longer considered part of the Christian life. This takes place, and then you have the Crusades that roll in a couple hundred years later. And again, there's not much... And the Reformation that starts, this is about 1,500 years, roughly 1,500 years after Christ. The Roman church has pretty much dominated uh, things, and uh, the church is pretty dead by this time because it's been institutionalized. And the Reformation is the big thing, that, and you have a little bit of background on that, probably from guys like Martin Luther and uh, John Calvin and Zwingli and a number of other men that God hussed, a number of other men and women that God raised up. Very, very huge, huge deal. But the issue to them was an issue of grace. Uh, and then it became the issue of grace as it's lived out in its morality. And no mention by any of the reformers does it ever talk about uh, tongues as a sign, as a spiritual gift, as a prayer language, as a praise language. There's no mention in the Reformation of it at all. So again, it continues in where it has not had any kind of history through uh, all the Reformation. The Great Awakening is the early 1800s, where the issues were about forgiveness and morality. And guys, in uh, a big, big start was up in England. A lot of it was here in the United States, where the church uh, after, started getting smart. You know, it was during the t following the time of the Enlightenment. And people started moving away from morality and moving away from the need for forgiveness. And so the great awakening of the church was a great period. There were actually a couple of waves where there was great evangelists, not only in our country, but in Europe. And uh, some great things were happening. Again, tongues is not mentioned at all. It, the, the tongues kind of came back into the picture 
This is here. This is the 1800s. Let me go. The Industrial Revolution. This is after our Civil War and the, the of the conscience of the people. It was the only group that was speaking out to what was right and what was wrong. Well, when the abuse started happening and an industrialist took over, money became a big, big part of the issue. And money was being fed to the church. Mmm, smells like Europe 1,500 years earlier, doesn't it? Well, the church started going quiet about the abuses that were taking place in the industrial world. And there were a number of believers that were very disgusted at what was going on. And so they were praying for a new uh, reformation, if you will. They needed a new rebirth of the church, and that's what was coming out of the Industrial Revolution. Um, oops, I'm going to back up here. So what, it, what takes place, you have three churches that came out of that, and I got the wrong deal up there, but three main churches came out of the 1880s on the breakup. One was the Christian church, the other was the Church of Christ, and the other was the Pentecostal church. Um, there were others, but those are the three big ones that kind of sprung out of there. Uh, and their whole desire was that the Word of God be honored, that salvation be preached. There are a lot of great things here that those churches did. They became the rallying cry. And so a big part of the Methodist church got on board with it, too. What happened is that the seminaries started changing in the early 20th century. The seminaries over in Europe, they started teaching. Uh, they weren't emphasizing the scriptures. Uh, there were more and more people that were just uh, being educated by folks that weren't theologically trained. And so there became a lot of different theological diversions divergent group, uh, schools of theology out there. One of the things that happened out of this Pentecostal movement, though, was, it was a pretty interesting deal. The McPherson's, there's a lot of good literature on all of this stuff, but uh, the leaders of the Pentecostal church, interestingly enough, one of the biggest leaders was a woman, which uh, is an interesting a little study in and of itself, is that because when the scriptures teach, you know, that men, it's supposed to be a male leadership deal. That's what God designed. But there's, there's female leaders moving in here. And Mrs. McPherson uh, was a big part of this. And she started kind of her own school of theology. And basically, their whole quest was to have a reenactment or a revitalization of Acts 2. So that's where they started teaching the theology of Acts 2 to this handful of people. And as the other churches took off and grew, the, the Pentecostal movement started a little bit slower. Uh, but it got its biggest boost. There were basically five guys that graduated from that little class. One went to California, one went up to Tennessee, one went to Florida, one stayed down in Houston, and I think the other one uh, went to Nebraska or someplace. But forgive me, I was going over some old notes last night just to give you a little bit of this, this background to, because it's pretty interesting. Uh, it was not getting much traction, but it finally got traction in 1906 out in uh, California. Anybody remember what happened in California in 1906? Very good. And as the story goes, uh, and again, this is not Scripture, folks. This is stuff that I have read and have learned in my journey or been taught. So this is, this is not inspired, okay? But the story goes, and this is a documented story, 
that the church that they, one of the guys tried to start in San Francisco, they preached Acts 2 passage. They, that was the text that they would preach time and time again. And they didn't, they didn't have any traction. After the earthquake and the big fire that happened in San Francisco, they went back into the church in San Francisco. They preached the same sermon and it became the core message for what started the Pentecostal movement on the West Coast. Was The genesis, genesis behind all that was the traumatic events that, that took place uh, in nature, or you know, in, not in nature. I guess fires aren't necessarily nature, nature, because somebody started that fire. Uh, it's anyway, that was just kind of the history, and it was still kind of the peripheral teaching until about 1960. 1960, uh, we have what is called Neo Pentecostalism, which is. It really, it was always the, the Pentecostal churches that were on the side. Their theology, these were not uh, educated people. They started teaching you had to be uh, baptized in the Spirit and evidenced by the speaking in tongues to be saved. They taught that uh, tongues was the second blessing. They taught that uh, tongues was superior. I mean, this is what we just read in First Corinthians, those three chapters. The tongues is not superior. To any of the spiritual gifts. In fact, Paul put it at the bottom of the list. But they made it the most. Uh, and those churches were the four square, uh, some of the assembly of gods. And there's some great people. Some of those guys are main, more a lot more mainstream now. But the, on the fringes, that's where it got its roots, and it took place. And it got traction about 1960. It took got even more traction during the Jesus movement during the 60s. In 1967, it had a real breakthrough because tongues made its way into being accepted by the Roman Catholic Church as part of their Reformation. Again, tangential, fringe, but it was part of it. So that's why we see it, you know, and that's, that's some of, of their journey as well. Um, so that's a little bit of the history. It's kind of gotten into it. We'll take a little break right here and we'll come back and uh, resume on our facts.